penny for your thoughts. This podcast builds on the spirit and the values of those 19th century hard-working Welsh quarry workers and farmers whose one-penny contributions were critical to the foundation of Bangor University in 1884. They saw the value in making academic knowledge and research accessible to their community, and so do we at Bangor Business School. This podcast series brings together our cutting-edge knowledge, new theories, and our expert opinions and insight on important business matters to share with you, our podcast community. The COVID-19 pandemic placed unprecedented pressure on the social security system in Wales and across the UK. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the past two years have seen unprecedented challenges. In this podcast, we explore whether the UK system is broken beyond repair, or do we have to break a few more eggs to make it right? Penny for your thoughts. Brought to you by Bangor Business School. We have with us Dr. Sarah Kloss Davis from Bangor Business School. We're going to be learning a little bit about the UK welfare state. So could you talk to us a little bit about what that is? And that is a very good question, Claire, because the welfare state has developed and changed over uh, the last few decades, to be honest. I suppose it's, in the UK certainly, it started to evolve in the early 1900s um, as part of the government's expenditure programme to improve people's health, education and employment in society. And in particular, after the aftermath of World War One and World War Two, where we saw a period of unemployment and poverty, uh, we saw the creation of more government interventions and involvement in people's lives. For example, food rationing, clothes—you know, rationing of clothes and fuel, etc. Um, and one poignant um, piece of work that was done just before that time, or just around when World War II was coming to an end. In 1942, the Beveridge Report was commissioned and published. And within that report, it's identified what they called the five giant evils in society. That sounds interesting. And those five were squalor, ignorance, want, idleness, and disease. My goodness. And within that report, uh, it's identified those five as, and called them, as I say, as giant evils. And it was recommended that a national compulsory scheme, such as an insurance scheme, uh, which combined health and employment and retirement benefits together, should be developed and implemented in the UK. Um, what we then saw just after that Beveridge report in 1945, the Labour government, uh, I should say the Labour Party came into power in government and they pledged to eradicate those five giant evils. Uh, and one of the ways of doing that is by implementing policies to support people from the cradle to the grave. So some of your listeners may have come across that quote from the cradle to the grave. And those implementations, they manifested in schemes such as, well, I suppose schemes we still see today, your national insurance contribution system, the NHS that we um, also have here. So this was under the idea as well that the money that would fund government expenditure, such as the national insurance contributions that were paid from that date onwards, and we still pay it now, should help fund... um, 
particular areas within the public sector that would improve people's health um, and their and their lives really mm. and I think long term the concept there was if you improve people's health mm -hmm. you improve their lives and therefore in a way you're making them more employable oh. so that they are now well enough to go into the labor market and of course if you have people working you have people paying tax and so the money comes back into the public sector and in theory they're pay they're, they're spending less on healthcare because they are now healthier that's so interesting um really interesting to you know hear about these sort of early policies that were developed and the, even the wording and the terminology used in them you know mm. the five evils um so from what you're saying um i think it's safe to say that um the welfare state is is politicized you know um from, from what you've said so far um it's involved um government interventions and you know it, it, it's been about the introduction of taxation um in some form um given that you know we're a devolved or parts of the uk are devolved does mm. the welfare state still exist in the same way as it did you know, back in the 1940s? Yeah, again, another good question, Claire. I think that is a controversial area, and I think you'll find um, a lot of blogs and forums and newspaper articles um, trying to answer that question. Um, I suppose for me, since 1945, you know, we have seen the Labour... Um, we've seen a Labour government, we've seen a Conservative government, we've then seen a Labour government again, and then again a Conservative government. But I suppose the basic principle of the welfare state can still be seen today to a degree. As, for example, the examples I gave earlier, you know, we still have an NHS mm. system. Mm. We still pay national insurance contributions. Um, but we also have new benefit systems that are in operation as, as of today, as I'm talking to you today, for example, tax credits, the universal credits, and so forth. In saying this, what we have seen in the UK is a drop in the welfare spending, especially during the Conservative government's austerity measures when they came into power in 2010. Uh, we also see a lot of different benefit programmes um, in operation now that are very strongly linked to the labour market. What I mean by that is, for example, if you were to claim universal credit, depending on your circumstances, and in, in some cases, this is not in all cases, but for some people who are recipients of universal credit, they are given uh, what they call a work coach. And what that means is that's a person that's designated to you as a universal credit recipient. And that person, that work coach, would help you prepare for work and help you find work. Now, if you do not comply, for want of a better word of describing it, if you don't comply and you don't engage with this work coach, then you could be sanctioned which means you might not receive universal credits, you, you, your, your benefits, your financial supports that you're depending on to pay for food and clothes and pay your rent, etc., will, will stop. In mm. some cases, it stops very quickly. So in order to receive this financial support from government, what we see nowadays a lot 
is that you've got to engage with the labour market. You've got to be seen to be wanting to work, going for job interviews and so forth. Um, tax credits is another good example. There's an element of tax credits, um, which is called the working tax credits. And to be eligible for that, I suppose the, the clue is in the title, working tax credits. You've got to be working a certain number of hours, a minimum number of hours a week to receive that financial support. So I suppose to answer your question, one could argue that do we have a welfare state? You know, you could argue we, we probably now have a workfare state rather than a welfare state. Um, and that has the risk of, you could say, splitting society between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. So those who are working deserve financial support from governments and those who are not working or behaving in the way the government wants them to behave um, do not deserve financial support. I am generalising, of course. There are, there are benefits out there for people who are unable to work because, of course, there are cases where people are just not capable mm. of working and so there are certain benefits available for them as well. But in general, that's the kind of trend I've seen mm. over the last few years. That's a fascinating term, workfare rather than welfare. Is this, is this a new term that, that uh, is sort of actively in use within your academic community? It is. I think I've seen this term being used, I suppose, in the last eight to ten years, mm. possibly. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Penny for your thoughts. Brought to you by Bangor Business School. You've explained that the working or work-able population have to demonstrate that they are at least willing to engage with getting a job, get, yeah. getting you know into work. Mm. Is there any distinction or are there any barriers that um, those who cannot work because they have um, disabilities, because they're just not well enough to work, are there increased barriers for those type of benefit recipients compared with back in the 1940s, 1950s? Have, have we seen a change in that element of the benefit system? I, th I think from my perspective, um, and based on the research that I've conducted, you could argue that there, there are new barriers that are being created, especially when we've seen a development in digitisation of the way public the public sector is now administrating and delivering the welfare uh, their welfare programs um you know i'll give you just some some examples there you could have an individual who has not got access to a computer and therefore unable to renew or claim certain benefits because the only way of claiming benefits is by going online and logging in. So you not only do you need access to a computer, but you would need the what they call digital literacy. So you, you need the skills and the knowledge to be able to work around the computer, to go online, to know where to go. So the, there are, I mean, that's just one example for you, but there, there would be many more. That's hugely interesting. And I think, you know, about myself, sometimes even just navigating around a banking app or a utilities application, that can be challenging enough when you are relatively digitally competent yeah. and, you know, you do have some skills in that area. Absolutely. And I think what's also come with that 
is because if you th- if you put yourselves in the shoes of the governments, um, you know, having everything online, one could argue, makes it a bit cheaper to operate. Um, you don't need the big buildings, the tax offices, the welfare offices in every town and every city because people can now go online to get that, to, to claim and to get that information, to get that help and support. Um, so we've, so I suppose the point I'm making there is what has come with digitization is the loss of that human touch, of being able to walk into a local office to get help by a person and to be able to physically show the box on a particular form you're trying to fill in and getting that person to help you straight away and not having to find it yourself uh, on a computer on the internet or waiting to get that help whilst being on hold on a telephone line. And I know you do a lot of support work and community um, work in this area where you um, support people and individuals who are um, experiencing challenges with the system. So uh, are you seeing more and more of this? Are you getting um, you know, more people coming to you saying, you know, we're confused with the system, we're finding challenges with this? And I am, I am. Um, and it, first of all, the people that you're referring to there include those who are receiving welfare but also I I work with very closely through my research and the work here at Bangor Business School um, I work with local charities and also people who are providing welfare advice Um, and they are all you know singing from the same hymn sheets they're all echoing the same message here um, that you know it's very difficult for a welfare system to be tailored enough to provide unique support that will support an individual specific needs and i suppose accounting has a got has got a lot to do with that mm-hmm. so that's interesting then so h- how does accounting play a role in the way the welfare benefits are administered yeah um it has a significant role um i think a lot of people possibly could think of accounting as you know as soon as you said you mentioned that word accounting probably a balance sheet yes. or a profits and loss yes, account or totally. something like that comes straight to <laughs> yeah. mind doesn't it yeah. and numbers Absolutely. and calculations yeah. and and yes accounting does um you know d- does relate to that but what i've learned through my research especially you know going back years when i did my mres my masters by research and I, then i did my phd i suddenly realized no Accounting is not just about that. Accounting is everywhere. It affects everyone. So what do I mean by that, especially in the context of other welfare states? Well, what does accounting mean? Um, for me, accounting means the identifying information, capturing that information, collecting it, categorizing it, and presenting it to someone. Well, don't we all do that? Yeah, yeah. Because let's take a welfare recipient as an example. So if you want to claim welfare, you've got to complete a form, an application form. So what are you doing there? You are confessing how you have behaved in that year. Mm. For example, how many hours you've worked? What is your income level? How many children do you have? Who is your employer? And you're you're collecting and capturing that information onto a form into specific boxes so you're categorizing your life 
onto that form. Now, for me, that is accounting. And then you're being judged on that information. You're being, and what I mean by that is, that form is then sent to the government or you know the welfare office, the DWP that we have here in the UK, or the HMRC. Um, that form is sent to them and they will look at that information and they will form a judgment whether you are the deserving poor or the undeserving poor. Do you deserve financial support or do you not? In that sense, so that's the kind of calculative part of accounting, I suppose, that an individual does without even thinking that they, it's the invisible accounting, if you want to call it that. And they're being judged on it. But I think I would also argue, and again, it comes back to my research, what I've seen people tell me, is that when they're filling that form in, they are quite nervous because some recipients are afraid of making mistakes. They don't understand how to calculate the income or which box they need to tick. And some of these forms are very abstract. And what I mean by that is maybe when answering a question, the options of the, the answer options don't actually fit in with their lives. So there is no, you know, um, relevant answer that they can give. So they have to choose out of a predetermined set of answers that the governments have given them. So during that process, psychologically, the, the person who's filling that form in would feel accountable because they're feeling judged. They feel, you know, I'm going to make a mistake here. Now, for me, that's a feeling of accountability. They feel they're going to get into trouble before they even know if they're going to get into trouble or not. And for me, that is another part of accounting. So accounting is, you know, preparing and providing information about your life. But also the other side of accounting is that feeling of being made, making yourself accountable. So that fear of making a mistake, knowing you're going to be judged, wondering how much tax credits are you going to get once you've sent that form in? When are you going to find out? Penny for your thoughts. Brought to you by Bangor Business School. I hadn't ever thought of a, a form um, as being a power device almost. You know, yes. it's sort of politicised, it's it's a power device because um, it can have power, I guess, over somebody filling it in. Absolutely. I completely agree with you, Claire. And um, part of my research does look into that. I use um, Michel Foucault and Pierre Bourdieu and their, you know, their theories and concepts of power. Um, Miller and Rose, who base their work on Foucault, actually refer to an application for, not that they didn't do work in welfare, but they do refer to uh, um, certain uh, forms and paperwork as accounting technologies. Wow. Okay. So in other words, an application form is an accounting technology because it has that power. It can convey power that can actually manipulate how people feel about themselves, what they do, um, and how other people judge other people. So what you what you find is, and what I found in my research is, you could have a welfare recipient who is um, preparing a form and completing it and sending it to the welfare office in the hope of getting financial support, they themselves start judging other people in society whether they should deserve welfare or not. So they feel judged themselves, but they also judge others in the same way. And it's the power of those forms and other accounting technologies that exist within that welfare field also play a part in all of that. That's absolutely fascinating. And I guess you have the 
you know, if you are somebody that is applying for financial help, you're going to feel marginalised and um, less powerful anyway. So you're yeah. at a sort of disposition, or you you may feel at a disposition in society already. Yes, there's I that agree. dynamic. There is that dynamic, and I could I, I could as you, as I was listening to you there, that took me to another area as well, where, you know, you know we've established now that an application form is an accounting tool. Mm. Miller and Rose refer would refer to that as an accounting technology, uh, but uh, but the advisors the welfare advisors so you know the the people who are on the other side of that telephone helpline they are also what Miller and Rose would refer to as an accounting technology as well so you could have it through so accounting could manifest the power of accounting I suppose could manifest in a form an application form it can also manifest in a human being so let me give you a quick example of that so you could have a welfare recipient who's trying to complete an application form for welfare but they don't understand it so they need help so what do they do well um, in more cases um, than than others they would phone uh, the welfare office to get help so they would phone them and they would get eventually they get to speak to a welfare officer um, and they find that the welfare officer is quite unhelpful um, and again this is not just me saying this, this is based on the research that, that I found. Um, and the welfare officer is unable to answer their specific question. And one of the reasons for this is, and part of my research is that I've, I've actually interviewed the welfare officers, so it's not just one-sided and all this is coming from the welfare recipients. Uh, but in, generally, in a nutshell, what I found is the welfare officers are having to read from a computer script. And so you will have, for example, uh, a welfare recipient asking a question. So they could ask um, something such as, you know, I don't know how to calculate my income. So the welfare officer would look on the computer, you know, they would literally look on the computer script and the computer script would tell the welfare officer, um, tell them to, uh, you know, advise them to look for their payslip and they would find it there. And they would give that, they would provide that advice. And then the recipient would say, well, I can't find my payslip. My employer, for some reason, doesn't give me a payslip. The answer would be repeated. So they said, well, you need to get your payslip. But I can't find my payslip. Well, you need to get your payslip. And so they find that they're not actually getting yeah. anywhere. And they're getting yeah. this repeated advice. Um, it's not the welfare, you know, one thing I also want to point out here is that it's not, it's not that the welfare officers on the other end of the phone are, you know, are doing this intentionally. It's because it's their job. They are, they are having to read from this script mm. because that's what they're being paid to do. Mm. And they've also got certain performance targets to meet. So what you also find is, in some cases, that they can't spend a lot of time on the phone with some welfare recipients because they've got to answer so many phone calls in a day. Yeah. Um, and so the welfare recipient doesn't want to come off the phone because this question hasn't been answered yet and they are desperate to get this, 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 this form completed because they need the money. Um, but the welfare advisor is trying to rush them or what I found in my research is that they um, very cleverly they would advise the welfare recipients to come off the phone but go online or you'll find more information if you go online so that means they come off the phone and that welfare advisor is able to take the next call for example but of course with some recipients they're either unable to go online or where they on 
when they do go online, they're unable to find information, they're unable to navigate through all the web pages to find a specific answer to that to their question it's, it sounds almost a bit sort of tayloristic doesn't it if you go back to sort of management science principles at the turn of the um century where you have you know um generally low skilled workers that are trained to a specific type of skill um so that they can you know in this case it would be reading the answers on a transcript and doing that call as quickly as possible and then you know reproducing that and doing that as fast as possible almost a bit like a factory production line absolutely yes i've actually analyzed um job adverts Mm -hmm. um advertised by welfare offices and hmrc tax credit helpline job adverts um and you see the trend over the years that they they, you know the desired characteristics or the what i don't know i'm trying to think what they call them now the you know the general requirements needed if you want this job you know that list of criteria a lot of those criteria now are including um, computer skills, telephone skills, not so much about um, you know welfare skills. Are you know a, you know again, again I should say this is based on my on, on the research that I've done. Um, but what we found is comparing it. If I go back to nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, when I speak to when I've interviewed um, ex HMRC officers who worked in the 1970s, 1980s, they were able to calculate uh, tax calculations. They understood the tax legislation and they were able to spend so much time with taxpayers on the phone and guide them through in how to prepare or complete a tax return, for example. These days, tax officers, obviously I can't speak for all of them, but the ones that I've interviewed, the computer calculates the tax calculations or the tax credits or the benefits. And so if, you, if a welfare recipient or a taxpayer wants to question what's been calculated, the advisor on the phone hasn't got the skills or the knowledge to be able to do that. And so they are again, they're repeating the figure that's shown to them on their computer screen to the person on the phone who needs the help. Um, and that ultimately has a, a negative impact on the welfare recipients or taxpayer because they're not getting the information in order to check and appeal and challenge a welfare decision, for example. Because the welfare advisor, one, they're either not able to spend a lot of time with them on the phone, two, they're reading from a script and therefore they can't digress and give them tailored help towards their specific needs because what's on a script is very general Um, and three the welfare advisor on the phone isn't able to calculate and check the benefits that's been calculated for them anyway and provide that information to them penny for your thoughts brought to you by Bangor business school how do you begin to rectify that and and so that the the sort of correct type, appropriate type, even empathetic type of support can can be given. Yeah, I think um, to answer that question, which is again a very good question, Claire. <laughs> um, I think I would go to the experts. The experts, in my opinion, are the welfare recipients. Mm. And in my research, I ask them that very question because they're the ones that have experienced the welfare system. And when I ask them, 
Um, the question I always ask them is, if you had a magic wand, you know, what would you change yeah. that would have improved your the outcome? That's a lovely question. And um, and nine times out of ten, they come back with the same answer, and that is that, you know, they're not complaining about the welfare. They need that financial support, and they understand that welfare advisors can only spend so much time with them on the mm. phone. But the one thing they would change in order to improve their experiences is to have a more humane way of helping them. And that can manifest in several different ways. So bring back or um, make more accessible um, face-to-face meetings with people. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen a closure of a lot of local tax offices and welfare offices over the decades now. Um, but we need some of those to come back, even if they look like hubs um, in your local library. And it's not just empathy, it's trust, yes. it's understanding, um, and it's knowing that that person you can go back to next week or next month or next time you want. Because sometimes, um, welfare recipient issues that, that, that are experienced by welfare recipients, they don't get answered straight away. It can take weeks or months. It's a process for some welfare recipients. And it does make a huge difference to their outcome if they deal with the same welfare advisor. What's happening at the moment, because everything's gone online and remote, what I mean by that is you either contact welfare officers um, online or by phone, Next time you phone them, you're speaking to a different one and you have to go through all over your background and an introduction to your problem all over again, which can dishearten and demotivate. And actually, it can stop some welfare recipients from challenging their welfare case. On the flip side, we also need to improve the experiences of the welfare advisors as well, because based on my research, they are working under, um, I would say, a culture that focuses on performance targets. Mm. Now, if we can do something about that, where the focus for you know for being promoted at work or getting in trouble at work is not so much on you have to answer so many calls, you've got to um, um, you know another side to my research is um, tax credit overpayments, where one target for um, one department was. Uh, a, a tax credit officer had to look for tax credit overpayments and collect it from people. Um, I always remember the quotes from one person that I interviewed where they were working inside like a debt collection air office um, and a colleague of theirs, she could, she could hear the colleague on the phone speaking to a tax credit claimant um, who was obviously very distressed on the phone because they had just received a tax credit overpayment bill and they had to pay it within 30 days and this tax credit officer came off the phone and he turned round to his colleague and he said yes I've just found a £15,000 overpayment I've just collected and when you think about and she was you know she was mortified when she heard a colleague say that but he had that mentality because he thought, I'm going to get promotion and the manager's going to be going to be happy with me now. I then found out that um, the tax credit officers in that specific unit, they were having daily management meetings in the morning, looking over targets of the previous day, mm. daily. 
And when you're when you're thinking of Foucault, yeah. disciplinary power, yes. when you're having that daily implementation, uh, tax credit offices in this scenario were being reminded on a daily basis of their targets and what they had to do, or otherwise they would get sanctioned. And so I don't, to an extent, you can't blame the welfare officers. So I think to answer your question, yes, we need to have a more humane relationship and way of delivering our welfare system and helping people. But we also need to do something about the culture within a welfare office or a tax office as well to make it easier. Because as I said earlier, it's not the fault of the welfare or, or tax officer um, to an extent. It's just they're working within a culture and they are limited to what they're able to do. Penny for your thoughts, brought to you by Bangor Business School. The targets and the performance that has been set, obviously, you know, it's been set at the strategic governmental level and it's trickling down and then it's also manifesting out towards um, the welfare recipients themselves. It is. I mean, and it sounds like an are, internal and an external it is. problem. And unfortunately, um, it's the welfare recipients who come out worse. Yeah. Um, because based on my research, due to what I've just mentioned and some other aspects as well that we haven't got time to go into right now, um, the welfare recipients, some of them end up financially worse off. Okay. Not better off and the whole idea of claiming the welfare pro uh, these welfare programs these welfare uh, benefit schemes is to make them financially better off but as soon as an individual comes under that radar and applies for welfare some of them end up financially worse off and not just financial but there, there is also non-financial aspects to this as well where i've seen welfare recipients become more stigmatized victimized through this as well mm. they have mental problems uh, tax credit overpayments that i mentioned earlier i have interviewed several tax credit claimants who have experienced overpayments so much so some have contemplated suicide uh, some their their marriages um, have failed because of it. Um, so there are non-financial mm. impacts to all of this as well. That's very hard to hear. That's very hard to hear, isn't it? Mm. Um, so as you know, the theme of this podcast today is, um, you know, you have to break eggs to make an omelette. Do, do you think that there is a way of rebuilding all of this? I yeah. think how, how how would you break all these eggs and make that omelette? It, it seems, just from what I'm hearing, that it's it's a, it's a mountain. It yeah. is absolutely, but it is possible. Um, I think there's a lot of research now available, not just academic research, but also research that's been conducted by charities such as Citizens mm. Advice, um, Joseph Rowntree mm. Foundation, the Field Foundation. There are several more as well who are. Um, you know that they're, they're finding similar similar results and outcomes for people, and I think it comes down to um, the governments now having to invest resources um, to change the cultures within certain offices and to change the delivery of welfare. And I think that change is starting to happen, but there's a lot more room uh, for for improvements. And you know it. 
of what is happening and what's being planned to to do to to, to improve uh, people's experiences and their outcomes i think it it should be done more quickly as well the timeliness of this is way too slow for some people um so so yeah i think it is starting to turn but i think the government needs to listen more to the research um, and also when it comes to policy design they need to consult with not the same people uh, who you know those same people including representative of charities who obviously do have something very important to say and they do have an important input in policy design and policy implementation but we also need to include welfare recipients in part of that consultation process as well we need to hear more about their own experiences if we are to improve experiences for those same people is there anything that you see in that, um, you know, I mean, obviously there are slight differences between Wales, England, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any sort of contemporary cutting edge or any slight sort of quicker movement in the right direction? I think Wales um, is being very, I'm trying to think of the word, innovative energetic in a lot of areas that fall into my area of of research that includes welfare but it also includes tax policy as well and and policy design so i'll give you a few examples of that wales has is piloting as we speak a universal basic income in specific areas of wales it is targeted towards specific groups of people as well so care leavers at the moment but in my opinion, we've got to start somewhere yeah. to see h- how does that play out? Is it effective? What can we learn from that pilot and so forth? Um, England is now very interested in that. Um, and, and there is a lot of talk in the in Greater Manchester area of perhaps piloting something similar to what we're doing in Wales. Um, the Welsh government is also... Um, is designing policy, not just in tax, not just in welfare, but generally um, across Wales, where they are um, including well-being in the in the way that they design policy and administer policy. So well-being is, is a very important criteria when it comes to the public sector. That would include the well-being of public sector workers. So that, for me, is a very important area especially based on what I've just mentioned and what I found in my research, where I mentioned earlier, you know, the culture of welfare offices and tax offices, you know, well-being could be improved there. So I think for me, Wales is, um, is definitely on the next, you know, two steps ahead, I would say, as compared to, to other areas of the UK. I think that's a really kind of nice way to sort of bring the, 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 chat today together because I mean we started off and you spoke about how we'd moved from a welfare system to a workfare system Mm. and now it seems that there seems to be a little bit of innovation in well-being Um, and yes it might not be directed as well-being system but there is certainly well-being being brought into the system yes so we're not necessarily you know doing a full circle but we, we're doing something different, doing something innovative. Absolutely. Doing something better. Yes, and it'll be interesting to see if, you know, in future, and I've um, I've done some work on this and, and sent it to, to the Welsh Government, where, you know, whether, you know, the question is, is it worthwhile for Wales to have its own benefit system? 
And if that would happen, I would like to see the well-being um, concept being implemented within that as well. That sounds hugely interesting. And I hope you'll pop by and do another podcast if that happens and we can talk to. about it. Be, yeah, I'd be more than happy to. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank I've learned you. so much. Um, it's been really interesting and insightful. Great. And Thanks, thank you for all the work that you do as well. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to Penny for Your Thoughts, brought to you by Bangor Business School. Subscribe through your usual podcast channel and don't forget to like and share.